A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And tonight we'll talk a little bit about one of the most uh, enigmatic or even confusing characters of the last century, that of Saul Lieberman. It's even a question of how to refer to him. Professor Saul Lieberman, Reb Shaul Lieberman, how, how to even refer to him. Some of his Students called him Hagrash, Hagoyin Reb Shaul Lieberman. So it depends who you are and how you want to refer to him. Saul Lieberman was one of the uh, heads of the Jewish Theological Seminary of the conservative movement. And so on one hand, he was affiliated with, with conservative, which is how many saw him. On the other hand, in his personal life, he remained uh, halachically observant, so is he Orthodox, he was kind of in between two worlds, and anyone like that is always an interesting story. You know, the mainstream people uh, make less of an interesting story than the ones who are on the fringe, who are kind of in between two worlds. So it's definitely something worth looking into. There's been an enormous amount written about him. There's a lot of sources. There's Dr. Mark Shapiro has a short uh, pamphlet on him. There's been full-length biographies written on him. There's quite a bit out there. So we'll just touch on a little bit about this very interesting figure. Um, and he, he came from the very traditional Litvish, Lithuanian, rabbinical background, almost pretty much at the elite of uh, the Litvish uh, rabbinical world. Um, his name, Shaul, is named after his grandfather, um, his his maternal grandfather, Reb Shol Katznelenbogen, who was a big Litvish Rav, who was a Rav in a few uh, towns in Lithuania. Um, he he was a a descendant of one of the greatest Litvish Ravanim of a couple of hundred years ago, the the author of the Karen Ira, a very important sefer on Kutchim, who's buried in uh, in Pinsk. In fact. On one trip I did, I do, you know, the trips to Eastern Europe, most trips do not go to Belarus. Some do, so I've been to Belarus quite a few times. One trip I did, we had someone who wanted to go 
to the Karen Iris cover, which of course doesn't exist anymore. The cemetery in Pinsk was destroyed, but we, we went to where it's supposed to be, so I even had an affiliation with that on the trip. But in any event, um, so he's a descendant of his, and his, his, his father, um, Moshe Lieberman, was, was, uh, was also a Rav, and his first cousin was the Chazayin Ish, uh, Saul Lieberman's first cousin. In other words, uh, his father, uh, his, excuse me, his mother and the Chazanish's mother were sisters. So here he's first cousins with the Chazanish. When the two of them lived in Eretz Yisrael, they definitely corresponded. I'm assuming that they may have even met each other, met each other, excuse me. Um, and they they definitely had somewhat of a relationship. It's not the only. Uh, on the fringe personality that the Chazanish had a relationship with. I mean, this is obviously family. It's his first cousin. Chazanish also famously was uh, very close with Chaim Potok, who was a, an author, a very famous author later on in the United States, who um, Chazanish studied with for a period of time, um, who left traditional Jewish life. But uh, either way, that's also a story in itself. So, so the 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 Saul Lieberman comes from this very strong traditional background. Um, he maintained a relationship with Chazanish, by the way, and there are letters between the two. In fact, the, the Saul Lieberman's only sibling was a brother uh, named Mayor Mayor Yaina um, Lieberman, who moved to Eretz Yisrael, stayed very religious, was even affiliated somewhat with the Naturi Karta. In Yerushalayim, the extremist sect in the Turi Karta, Soliman had a relationship with his brother. As far as I, I understood, he even financially helped him out at some point, um, sent him financial support. Um, so you're talking about someone who remained entrenched as far, at least as far as family was concerned, um, with that world. Now he himself. Uh, studies in the great yeshivas of Lithuania. He learned in Malch, um, the yeshiva in Malch. He was in Slabotka. Um, now, apparently, even when he was in Slabotka, he there was there was uh, suspicious behavior in this regard. Um, Rav Ruderman, Rav Yakitzlik Ruderman, the yeshiva in Israel, was his roommate in Slabotka, and according to at least one testimony, the altar of Slabotka took Rav Ruderman out of his room, and fearing that Saul Lieberman would be a negative influence on the young Yaakov Yitzchak Ruderman, and because of that, Rav Ruderman was, uh, lived in the altar's home himself. And Rav Ruderman used to speak about very often how he actually lived by the altar. He lived in the altar's house, and his exposure to the altar of Slabatka because of that was very close, and he credited it because you know, the altar took him out of that room and didn't want it to be together with Saul Lieberman. Now, it's it's hard to know. Meaning, was was the signs of his later direction in life already evident at the time? It's hard to say because there were quite a few boys in Slabatka who took different directions, and especially if we're talking about studying secular studies or going to college, there were others in Slabatka at that time who, who did that as well um, and didn't end up in the seminary. Right, Rav Hutner and Yaakov Weinberg was even earlier, Sridei Eish and others. So I'm not sure if, if it was because uh, he was attracted to secular studies and that was his only sin at that time, or it was other things. 
or perhaps um, um, the story needs to be taken with a grain of salt. So the in, in, he he moves on past Labatka. He studies first in Kiev, and he later was in college in France. In 1927, um, he's already in he's already older. He moved to Eretz Now he had already married. The, also, in his marriage, he married into the elite of the Lithuanian rabbinical world. He married the daughter of the Minsker Rav, Rav Lezer Rabinovich, the, the Rav of Minsk, again, one of the most important rabbis in the, in the, uh, the rabbinical world at the time, and he was his son-in-law. And, of course, she's a granddaughter of the Minsker Gadol, Biruchim Yehudalei Perlman, famous uh, Minsker Gadol, and... So they're married. Um, that marriage, he, she died young, and he remarries again, again into the elite. He marries the daughter of Rameir Berlin, Barilan. I want to change his name to Barilan, the youngest child of the Nitzivs. He's a son-in-law of Rameir Barilan, um, who later said that he opposed his move to go join the staff, the faculty at the Jewish Theological Seminary. But he was his son-in-law. Um, they never had children. He remained childless throughout his life, uh, which is interesting because a lot of the figures in that world, those fringe figures, didn't have children. It's a bit ironic. In fact, his cousin, his first cousin, who was not a fringe figure, uh, the one who I mentioned, uh, the Chazanish, was also childless. And Rebichil Yaakov Weinberg, who's also a fascinating story, he... His, you know, after his divorce, he never got remarried, and so he uh, did not have any uh, offspring. Did not live with any any children. Um, Samuel Atlas was another famous figure like that. He's the son of Rameir Atlas, the Rav of Shavel, who was the father-in-law of Bachanan Vasserman, one of the greatest rabbis in Lithuania. So his son Samuel Atlas was at the Hebrew Union College of the Reform. Also a bit of a fringe figure, and he also never had children. Um, the, the, um, so, so either way, so, so Saul Lieberman moves to Israel in 1927. He joins the Hebrew University, and eventually he's invited to head the Harry Fischel Institute in 1935. This had been founded by Rav Cook, who, who he was very close with. He was very, very close with Rav Cook, he studied with Rav Cook, um, Lieberman, and Rav Cook's brother was in charge of the Harry Fischel Institute. And at this time, um, he had a, a close relationship with Rav Herzog and Rav Zalman Meltzer, as well as other Rabbanim in Yerushalayim who were affiliated with Kalap, who was affiliated, who were all affiliated with the Harry Fischel Institute of Training Rabbanim. This is a very orthodox, definitely orthodox. Uh, a place, and and he becomes in, he's somewhat in charge of that. That's his first position. Now, in he's there for several years, and in 1940 he takes up his position at the seminary. And then people started speculating, why did he take it? And it caused a bit of a surprise in the traditional world how someone who is a great genius, who is a huge Talmud Chacham, who was seemingly part of the the Litvisha yeshiva world, even though he already had a university education and he was, you know, definitely a researcher and a fantastic researcher. 
and not a not not what we would call the yeshivish in the traditional sense, but definitely a rising star. And here he took a job at the seminaries. A few things need to be taken in context to understand why he took the job at the seminary. First of all, what was the seminary at the time? The seminary at the time was definitely in 1940. It was recognized as the conservative movement, and there was already opposition to it within traditional circles in the American um, Torah world. The Agudas Harabanim definitely already had serious issues with it, but it wasn't the seminary of what we know it, of it as today, or even of the 1950s and 60s, um, where there was a movement away from tradition, um, especially when they allowed their congregants, the conservative movement, to drive to Shul on Shabbos, the famous Psak of the 1950s, which kind of changed and made the slippery slope of the conservative movement away from tradition. But but this is 1940. It's still somewhere in the realm of tradition. And the faculty, the rabbayim in the seminary were all Orthodox, or pretty much most of them were still Orthodox. Mordechai Kaplan was on the faculty, so they can't say it can't be said about him. Um, and and the the um, the many of the student body came from yeshiva college, came from orthodox homes, so there was a bit of a ambiguous, uh, you know, where does the seminary stand? And it wasn't as clear cut and divided as it was subsequently in later times. Not only that, but the shuls of the conservative movement. It wasn't so simple. What was the, exactly the distinction between shuls that belonged to the conservative movement and shuls that belonged to the Orthodox affiliation? Many shuls of the conservative movement at the time had mechitzas, and many Orthodox shuls did not have mechitzas. So mechitza, which became the defining feature in the 1950s and 60s, can't be said about the 1940s. So again, we're living at a very different time in the story of American Jewish community, in the history of American Orthodoxy, and the history of the conservative movement. And taking all that into context, which of course there's more to elaborate on, which we'll say for another time, but the seminary wasn't as, as, as it would be later on, and therefore it's definitely not as much of a shock. But still it was the seminary, and it still belonged to the conservative movement. It's still a question is raised, not just now, in retrospect, but of course at the time as well, why would someone like Saul Lieberman, who's such a great scholar, who's such a great Talmud Chacham, who's such a great product of the Litvish Yeshiva world, why would he join? And all kinds of reasons were given, some financial reasons. Uh, Saul Lieberman wanted to devote his life and already had begun to devote his life to scholarship, to an academic study of traditional rabbinical uh, uh, scholarly works specifically from the period of time of Chazal. He devoted his life to researching the Yerushalmi and especially what he became famous for, the Tesefta, which he devoted literally decades to researching and writing on. It was his magnum opus, his uh, multi-volume work on the Tesefta. And, uh, and uh, when he started writing on the Yerushalmi, so he started writing on brachas, and then he said to himself, I can't write on brachas until I know the entire Yerushalmi. So, you know, he had an incredibly high standard of scholarship, and he wanted to be able to devote his life to research, and he wanted to find a place where it would be a conducive atmosphere to research, where we would have access to sources and materials, 
and that would give him the financial stability to do it. And in the Harry Fischel Institute and the milieu of Yerushalayim at the time, it would not give him that, uh, that uh, it wasn't feasible. And the Hebrew University wasn't either. And they weren't willing to help him. Um, so, and, and the seminary was. The seminary was giving him minimal teaching requirements. He had to give, you know, he was the head Gemara teacher. And in the rabbinical school, he was the one who signed off on their smicha later on. In 1949, he was appointed to be the head of the rabbinical school. So he signed off on the smicha of anyone in the conservative, in the flagship of conservative rabbinical school of the seminary. And he, um, but it was minimal teaching responsibilities and gave him um, much time to do research. He was paid well. He was, and the Jewish Theological Seminary, Somewhat till today, for sure then, had the greatest uh, library, Judaic library in the entire world. Uh, today, could be uh, the National Library in Israel has more, other places, but definitely at that time, the Jewish Theological Seminary had the greatest uh, access to sources, and literally it would be a great financial decision and career decision if he wanted to devote his life to research. In addition to that, his brother, we mentioned, Mayor Lieberman, and others have pointed to the fact that he wanted to influence people, and especially those who were possibly further from traditional Judaism. He said, this way, if I'm inside the conservative uh, place, I could, I could influence from the inside. I can bring people closer to Tyra. I could bring people closer to Yiddishkeit. And Many opposed that move. They said, no, they'll influence you. Not only that, but you're giving legitimacy to the movement. Look, they'll say now, and they did say, look, we have the great Reb Shaul Lieberman here. We have the great Talmud Chacham and an undisputed scholar with us. He's on our side. So you see, we're not all that bad. So that you can't give legitimacy to that. And if this was one of the reasons that he went there, said, no, I could influence, I could teach them, I could work from the inside. He even tried getting others uh, to, to join him. He even tried getting Rapinchas Hirschsprung from Montreal. He tried to convince him to join the faculty of the seminary later on. Obviously not successfully, did not convince him, but there were other Orthodox uh, scholars and rabbis who he did manage to convince to join the faculty. And the seminary uh, itself uh, tried to work on that as well. This would give them more of a legitimacy and um, that was one of the reasons. In fact, it's, it's a bit ironic because some of the the uh, rabbinical opposition that uh, in the Agudas Rabbanim in America that was upset that he joined, they said, even if you want to influence, but how could you teach a Talmud She'enoi Haglan? How could you teach those who are far from Yiddishkeit? They're going to influence you. you. It's inappropriate for you to do so. And this is, again, in 1940. In the 1960s and 70s, the Kirov movement starts and there's all these rabbis going out there into the field and doing exactly that. They're going and teaching those who are far from Jewish tradition. And uh, there didn't seem to be much opposition to that. Perhaps it's different because it was in the seminary and it was giving it legitimacy. But again, it's, uh, it's also a bit ironic. So he, he, um, he remains there. In fact, uh, when Professor Chaim Dimitrovsky was hired to be a, a, a rebbe, at the seminary, he was a member, a member of the faculty. So he asked the Lubavitcher Rebbe if he could join, and the Rebbe said, you can stay in the seminary as long as Lieberman is there. In other words, uh, that did keep, and he did. He insisted on certain 
and certain things, you know, uncompromisable uh, ideals. At the end of his life, he bemoaned the fact that, that there was uh, a d- distance from halachic traditions within the conservative movement and even within the seminary itself. As long as he davened in the shul on the seminary campus, which he did until the end of his life, there was separate seating. And after he died, that went out. After he died, the women's ordination became uh, possible within the seminary. As long as he was ahead of the rabbinical school, he was opposed to it. And he even asked his students, he said, that's something I want you to keep going even after I die, the opposition to women's ordination in the rabbinical school. So he, he did fight to keep elements of tradition, elements of keeping halacha. And the question is, how did others see him from the outside? So in the early years, in the 1940s and 50s, it took a while to get used to the idea that someone who was one of theirs was teaching at the seminary. And uh, just as an example, that, uh, that, uh, that uh, like I said, Mark Shapiro brings in his, uh, in his monograph about, uh, about Lieberman, about when the Aguda Sarabonim put Mordechai Kaplan in Cherem when he founded the Reconstructionist movement. He published a book which had all kinds of heresy in the book, and they put him in Cherem. He's a Kaifer, he's an Apikairis. And then they wrote an open letter to Lieberman. How can you teach? You're one of us. You're, you're, you're a Talmud Chacham, you're Yari Shemayim. You keep halacha. How could you teach in the same seminary as as Mordechai Kaplan. So you see how they looked at him still at that point as one of theirs. And that would slowly change as he stayed in the seminary longer and longer. The distance grew greater, greater. The Orthodox in America moved to the right. The conservative movement moved to the left. Lieberman somewhere in the middle. And did he consider himself Orthodox or consider himself conservative? That's a big question. And that many disputed and many actually disputed pretty sharply. He did consider himself orthodox. He didn't consider himself, he considered himself conservative. He did not consider himself conservative. He probably considered himself somewhere in the middle. He didn't, didn't like those labels. He wrote in, in, in a few letters, I consider myself a teacher of Torah and someone who keeps the halachas of the Shulchan Aruch. In other words, he's careful not to say the words conservative or orthodox. Neither label, you know, in his personal life. Again, there's being affiliated with the seminary. There's teaching in the seminary's rabbinical school. There's doing the research and the svarim that he is. And then there's his own personal life, what he keeps. And uh, somehow they, they could either conflict with, with, they could all conflict or they could all somehow in his own life, in his own, in his own mind, all be in harmony. And so he'll remain uh, a bit of a, uh, ambiguous figure. But, uh, that's the, that's, uh, the reflection of of uh, of a little bit of about his life and his career um, of Saul Lieberman. So this was Yehudi Gerber with Jewish History Soundbites. Um, you can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com. Um, you can, for questions, comments, sources, trips and tours of Jewish history, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, don't miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter at jsoundbites. And I hope you enjoyed.